Welcome back to another episode of Daula, New Histories of the Medieval Middle East, brought to you by the postdoctoral researchers at Ghent University, that's in Belgium. My name is Kenneth Gowdy, and in this episode, we're going to be continuing our journey through the entangled lives of our authors and their texts. I'm here with the dulcet tones of Mustafa Bannister, who has traded in the host's chair for the hot seat. So, without further ado, take it away, Mustafa. Who is your historian? Well, I work on Ahmed ibn Arabshah. His dates are 1389 to 1450. Most people probably know his name due to a very scathing and biting biography he wrote about uh, Tamerlane or Timur in the 15th century. And, and most people associate him with his contributions to Timurid historiography and, and the history of Timur and his family. Part of the reason that it was such a such an emotional, scathing biography is because he himself, had, at about the age of 11, had been a survivor of uh, Tamerlane's attack and uh, sack of Damascus in 1400, after which he and his family were taken prisoner. And after a few years of, of being Tamerlane's prisoners in Samarkand, he moves on to uh, many of the other Muslim courts in Western and Central Asia and for the next 20 years or so, traveling from, from court to court, looking for training and looking for a, a permanent scholarly position. Until about 20 years later, he returns to the lands of the Cairo Sultanate, to his, to his native Syria. Now, he was primarily an adib, a literateur and a poet, but he did also write uh, historiographical works and works of history, uh, such as his biography of Timur, as well as a panegyric of the Sultan of Cairo, uh, Zahar Jakmak, which is the main text that I focus on. And so far, he hasn't really been approached as a player in medieval Syria and Egypt. He's, he's really just sort of, when you think of him, you think of Timur. So I'm trying to change that perception of him and look at him as a, as a cog or look at him as a, as a participant in the networks that we engage with in 15th century, uh, in 15th century Syria and Egypt. Now, before we go into more detail about who Ibn Arabshah actually was, I'd like to get a bit more background information about you. You're one of the two Mamlukists by training on the project. What was your previous research and how did it lead you to working on Ibn Arabshah? Well, my PhD project was a comprehensive study of the Abbasid Caliphate as it was reimagined and reconfigured for the context of the Cairo Sultanate from about the time of its installation by the Sultan Baybars in 1261, all the way down to the Ottoman conquest of 1517. Uh, I looked at it as an institution and as a organizational idea. And in the, within that project, one of the chapters dealt with looking at political theory and looking at how the Abbasid Caliphate of Cairo generated a number of what we might think of uh, works of political literature. One of the members of my uh, PhD advisory committee was a specialist on medieval Iran, who of course uh, focused on the Timurids and knew Ibn Arabshah's work quite well, and asked, uh, recommended that I take a look at one of his texts, which was called the Fakahat al-Khulafa, which was written in Cairo in the 15th century. And because of the title, The, the Fruits of the Caliphs, she, she thought, you know, maybe this will have some bearing on your project on the Caliphs. And uh, it, it didn't have anything to do at all with the, with the, <laughs> the Abbasids of Cairo. But uh, it, it actually turned out to be a very interesting work in and of itself, work of advice literature uh, based on an earlier text template of the, um, the Marzban Name. Uh, he, he did a remake of it for medieval Cairo. And you know, in the course of my study of, of the Fakiha, 
she mentioned, you know, nobody's really worked on Ibn Arabshah. There's only been one work on Ibn Arabshah so far by Robert McChesney called A Note on the Life and Works of Ibn Arabshah from about 2006. For the most part, he's been ignored, largely because of his very sort of fancy, verbose prose and style. And many people are just content to read the translation of his biography of Tamerlane rather than engage with this really sort of difficult uh, Saj Arabic uh, prose that he's writing. So the text wasn't as useful for your previous project as you'd hoped, but was there something about Ibn Arabshah's writing which made you think he'd be ideal for future work? Well, I didn't really... I was more more so acquainted with the Fakihat al-Khulafa because I'd gone through it quite a bit for my PhD research. I didn't really know about his other work. I, I mean, scholars have known about his panegyric for Jack Mack since at least the 20th century. But I didn't really know that panegyrical work as much as I knew the Fakihat. So initially I had thought about working on the Fakihat al-Khulafa, which is really more uh, of a work of, of a Furstenspiegel than historiography per se, although there are historical anecdotes in it. But when I, when I stumbled across this panegyric of Jack Mack, which had, you know, it was much more appropriate for the kind of project that we're doing here on historiography, it seemed like a more obvious choice. You've mentioned that Ibn Arabshah is best known for his biography of Timur, of Tamerlane. I think at this point it's probably a good idea to explain who exactly Timur was. Timur, or Tamerlane, uh, was a Central Asian warlord conqueror, uh, effectively active in the later 14th century. He dies in 1405. He was born around the 1320s or the 1330s in a Chinggisid cultural political milieu in Central Asia. And his big ambition was to restore the Mongol Empire of Genghis Khan, which was crumbling by the 1330s. And ultimately, he makes his own empire on the, on the ashes of the Ilkhanid or Mongol Empire, which includes uh, Iran, parts of India, Anatolia, uh, the Arabic-speaking Middle East. So it's due to Timur's imperial ambitions that Ibn Arabshah enters his orbit? In 1400, he sacks his forces sack and destroy the major cities of Syria, including Aleppo and Damascus, which is then part of the Sultanate of Cairo, in which he, uh, in which Ibn Arabshah is living, and as was the practice, he, you know, of, of moving populations around, he takes, you know, many scholars and artisans back to his capital in Samarkand, including the family of Ibn Arabshah, uh, who were not. Artisans or scholars, it seems, and uh, you know Ibn Arab Shah and the, the female members of his family were were most likely taken uh, as, as war booty, and so he spends. Uh, and so this is in around 1400. They are taken about a third of the way across Asia, and you know, very very far from Damascus, and made to, to live in Samarkand with other scholars and people who are being held there against their will. You know, Timur is kind of in and out. He's he's conquering other parts of uh, uh, West and Central Asia. And, you know, Ibn Arabshah, as a young boy, he's about 10 years old. He's learning about Timur's, you know, he's, he's in Timur's capital learning about things secondhand as they're happening. And, of course, Timur comes back every once in a while, and, and Ibn Arabshah is also there when he dies in 1405. Did Ibn Arabshah have a relationship with Timur? I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't close to Timur or anything like that, but he was definitely, you know, somebody probably on the outskirts of, of his court who, who knew what was happening. He was studying He was studying with uh, many of the other scholars, uh, particularly Muhammad al-Jazari and Ali al-Jorjani were the two big names uh, for him at the time. He's, he's learning about Timur and his deeds and, and you know, every time there's a, a major wedding or something like that, he, he, he talks about it, but he probably himself was not privy to the inside of Timur's circle. 
Why exactly is Timur kidnapping all of these scholars and taking them back to his court in Samarkand? Part of it is about building up your court, building up the prestige of your capital. Uh, Timur, of course, in Samarkand has little gardens uh, named after all of the other cities of, of the Islamic world. Uh, there's the Baghdad, there's Cairo, and then the, 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 the implication is that they're, they're nothing but small gardens in, in comparison to his um, the glorious Samarkand, where he's brought all of the scholars of the age to duke it out for his, his uh, enjoyment. He, he, liked to, he, he very much liked to have scholars debate each other. So it seems from what you're telling us that Ibn Arab Shah has a very exciting adolescence. His formative years are spent in the imperial court of Timur. Does his life continue to follow this pattern of excitement or do things change post-Timur? Yeah, we we can look at his we can look at his life as, as falling into two sections. The earlier part, of course, where he's in search of a scholar, in search of a teacher, mm-hmm. in search of you know social and cultural capital to build his his name on. And um, the second half, where he you know settles down and and tries to establish himself in a position and look for uh, clients of his own. How much do we know about this time? We know a little bit less about that time. We we actually. What we know about Ibn Arab Shah comes from, you know, a number of biographies that were written about him from peers and younger peers in Cairo, as well as the autobiographical section of an ijazah that he wrote for the historian Ibn Taqribirdi to teach his works. So he mentions, you know, all the different places that he lived and where, who he studied with and, you know, what his life was like as he moved around post-Timur and how he tried to come back to the Cairo Sultanate. Uh, his son actually wrote a biography of him, which uh, is, so far seems to have uh, not have been found yet. What exactly does Ibn Arab Shah do after Timur dies, in the immediate aftermath of Timur's death? Basically, he's, he stays in Samarkand. Um, he stays there about another three years after Timur dies, and he leaves when Timur's eventual successor, Shah Rukh, comes to power. Uh, it's, Ibn Arab Shah's relationship with Shah Rukh is kind of unclear. He may have had some kind of uh, patronage relationship with one of his sons, but that, that needs some more research. But uh, at one, at one the, the, the point is he pretty much hightailed it out of Samarkand when Shah Rukh arrived. And his next move was, um, was Astarakhan or Tarkhan, and he's there between 1409 and 1411. And as I said, he just moves around to different courts in Central Asia and West Asia, in Khitta, Khwarazm, Sarai, eventually making his way to the Crimean Peninsula in around 1411. And he's there for a number of years. He, he doesn't seem to stay in one place too long, maybe two, three years. And after Astrakhan, he has his family. He has a family with him. And at some point uh, after... Uh, a few years in, Ast- in uh, Kirim, in the Crimean Peninsula, he moves across the Black Sea and takes up a position in Ottoman Indirne, uh, which at the time, in 1413, of course, uh, you know the Ottoman Interregnum has just ended, and the new Sultan, uh, Mehmed Chalabi, or Mehmed I, has established himself uh, in Indirne. What was Ibn Yarib Shah doing at these various courts? Many of the places where he spent time, you know, he was engaged with learning things like religious sciences, presumably to build up the resume, if you like, to be able to you know, perform work as a Qadi or as a religious official of some kind. Uh, it, it's worth pointing out that when he gets to the Ottoman capital, he is working primarily as a munshi, as a somebody who, who composes documents, somebody who works in the chancery, somebody who, who does translation and, and interpretation. One of our historians, 
based in Cairo, uh, Al-Bikai, who, who you know very well, uh, actually says that Ibn Arab Shah was the uh, Sahib Diwan al-Inshah, which is quite a puzzling statement, and nobody else says that. Uh, and it's interesting because that implies that Ibn Arab Shah was the chief of the chancery. Uh, no other source says that. And certainly he didn't make, he doesn't seem to have made quite that big of a splash in contemporary Ottoman uh, sources at the time. He tells us in the in the Ijazah that he's writing in Arabic and Shagatai Turkish and Persian. He's writing to rulers like the Akoyunlu, the Sharuk, to the Uzbeks on behalf of the Ottomans. Other scholars who have looked into this have not been able to find any evidence of, of or any surviving letters that he wrote or that he may have wrote. And he stays there for the length, for the duration of Mehmet I's first reign from 1413 to about 1421-22. And it's after that that he decides that uh, he wants to go back to Syria. Why do you think he decided to go back to Syria then? At this point, he's about 33. And so, you know, maybe he thought he had picked up enough experience to go back and try to make a go of it in Syria, where he was from. Was he able to use this experience to build a new life for himself in Syria? Was it relatively straightforward? I think he, he, he essentially has to start from scratch. He just attaches him. He tries to study with... He's still in this position where he's looking for somebody to study with, somebody to help him build up his credentials. So he studies uh, Hadith. He studies some, some texts with a few local scholars at Damascus. But you know he he has a hard time. In the meantime, he works as a uh, as a minor legal official uh, outside the courtyard of, uh, uh, of the Kasab Mosque outside Damascus. This must have been quite the change in status for him to get used to. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we we we, we can speculate about how this must have been for him to go from you know the height of of being in the chancery, the Ottoman chancery, down to you know writing documents or copying text for hire outside of a mosque. Uh, it was definitely a fall in status for him, and it must have been presumably a blow to his to his ego or, or where he, he thought he, he, he was worthy of being when he was 33. I think one thing that we need to bear in mind when we think about the 15th century is that it is a particularly competitive environment. What exactly did Ibn Arab Shah have that, could, that he could use to make himself stand out, to make himself more attractive for potential patrons? Well, he, he could he could have presented his long list of teachers. He could have presented his list of um, positions that he'd had. And I think he could also mobilize his expertise on the Timurids and how close he had been to what was happening in Samarkand and you know all the different intrigues and succession disputes and, and that kind of thing that he was privy to. Why is his knowledge of Timur and of uh, Timurid politics something that would have been potentially valuable in Syria? Now, there's been a lot of recent research talking about how the Timurids were, or how the legacy of the Timurids was interpreted uh, in the 15th century. And it seems to be the case that all over, you know, in, in, or at least in parts of Central Asia and, and West Asia, Timur represents this larger-than-life legacy. Cornell Fleischer has, has demonstrated for the Ottomans that the image of Timur became something that was very important to, to sovereignty and to kingship and to their own understandings of their kingship, even though Timur had actually completely disrupted the Ottoman project in, in the uh, 1400s. But I think that this, this plays out much differently in the lands of the Cairo Sultanate, where Timur is only remembered as, as like the master of horror and the master of carnage. And, you know, he takes all these ideas of, of ideal rule and he inverts them. In, with Timur and, and presents Timur as a kind of uh, the, the total anti-ideal ruler. 
So essentially, Ibn Arabshah is writing for an audience which has a very different social memory of Timur. Do you think that he's creating the image that they would have expected? I think so. I, I think it was definitely written for, for people who wanted to hear about, who were very curious and very fascinated by, by, by the Mongols and also later by Tamerlane. And, you know, they wanted that story told and they wanted it told uh, in a way that, I guess, rang true with how it had been experienced in the lands where, where Timur came. You figure, you figure when, when he arrives in, when he comes back to Damascus, when he comes back to Syria, and, you know, word gets out that here's somebody who was taken away 20 years ago by Tamerlane and lived to tell the tale and, and spent time in Samarkand and saw everything. I mean, if, if you, if you ran into him at the mosque, you'd say, oh my, oh my God, tell me about what happened to you. What, like, what, what was that all about? What, I mean, you were, you were right, you were right in the, in the den of this horrible, Lion, I mean, tell, tell us everything you know. And after, you know, he told that story a few times, you know, he figured that he, he told that too. He figured it was probably a story that he told often. And so once, you know, he told that story a few times, he maybe had the idea that he could fashion it into an identity statement that, you know, that, that accomplished a number of things for him. It announced his expertise on the Timurids. It, it, was, it was a venue for him to display his, uh, his venerable style as an adib. Do you think it was cathartic for him as well? Absolutely. The way that he wrote about it was with, with this intense, this intensity, this emotion, and with a high degree of, of style that uh, brings across his anguish and also demonstrates how much of a you know how much of an adib, how much of a of a of a poet and literature he is. When does he write it? He works on this text uh, on Tamerlane between fourteen thirty five and fourteen thirty seven. This comes at a time where he, he, he starts regularly visiting between Damascus and Cairo, and essentially what we might think of as a book tour. He's showing off the book to high, you know, people who he thinks are high-placed who might be able to help him out, uh, particularly the historian al-Makrizi, as well as local scholars in Damascus like Ibn Kadi Shahba, who I mean, he shows it to every, everyone he can, and everyone is completely blown away by it. A lot of people take it, a lot of historians take it and read it, but sort of deflate all the style from it. They, they take it and use it as, as uh, a container of facts full of names and dates and places. It, it definitely uh, starts the bell ringing for his reputation and becomes something as, as uh, it becomes something that he, he's, he's known for it. He's not, he's not just the guy who survived Tamerlane, he's the guy who can tell a really good story about it as well. Exactly. Now he's writing this about what, 15 years after his return to Syria. What has he been doing during those years, well, the big the big thing that happens for him is um, you know he's finally able to attach himself to an important scholar, Muhammad ibn Muhammad ibn Muhammad al Adin al Bukhari, who was a Hanafi Maturidi scholar and Sufi sheikh from the east. Uh, he was an important uh, student of Saadadin uh, Taftazani, uh, who was uh, a client of Timur. One of the ones, one of the ones who, who Timur used to like to have uh, debate for his pleasure. Bukhari spent some time in India and also in Cairo in the court of the Sultan Ashraf uh, Barzbay. Uh, but he also was somebody who got himself into a lot of controversies. He got he essentially had to exile himself from Cairo because of uh, controversy he got into over the legacy of Ibn al-Arabi, the uh, mystical philosopher. And also, in, uh, and eventually he winds up in Damascus, where he starts an entirely new circle, uh, including uh, a few notable names uh, for the Cairo Sultanate, like uh, Kamaladin al-Badazi and Ibn Arab Shah and his son, Abdul Wahab Tajuddin. 
But of course, you know, after not long in, in Damascus, he starts another controversy about Ibn Taymiyyah, and that riles up. So he's, he's really, it's interesting that he sort of, he, he trashes Ibn Arabi and Ibn Taymiyyah, who are, you know, sort of on opposite ends of the spectrum, yeah. if you like. But Ibn, Ibn Arab Shah was an important part of his circle in, in Damascus. So he spends about, Ibn Arab Shah spends about 10 years uh, studying with Bukhari and, you know, having Bukhari help him with his texts and helping him to, to perhaps strategize a way to support himself and his family. What sort of relationship did al-Bukhari have with figures of authority? Well, al-Bukhari is an interesting figure in that regard because he sort of walks the fence. On the one hand, the sources tell us that he was somebody who the ruling political elites looked up to and, and they wanted his counsel and they sought him out and they respected him. But he was always somebody who spurned the money of the of the ruler, you know, he didn't. He didn't want the gold purse. He didn't want to go to the ruler and, and uh, take the ruler's money. And he very much was against his students doing that same thing. How was Ibn Arab Shah supporting himself during this period? Did he continue working as a notary? Uh, that's what I would assume. We don't, we don't have really any concrete evidence in Bukhari's circle. He was a client of Bukhari, but I don't think that that implies any kind of uh, financial assistance. On the, on the, on the, even though al-Bukhari was quite wealthy and was in a great position to tell his students, ah, don't worry about taking that, that money from the sultan. <laughs> but luckily for Ibn Arab Shah, al-Bukhari dies the same year that the sultan Barzbay dies in 1438. And, you know, every time we have the death of, of a sultan, everything goes into a state of flux and the political order has to be re, recalibrated and realigned. The social order, you know, there's, there's, all kinds of openings and reappointments. And so Ibn Arab Shah, this comes at a time when he is making a lot more visits to Cairo. I think when he came to Cairo, I'm sorry, when he first came to Syria from from uh, Ottoman Edirne, it was around 1422. Barzbe had already come to power, and I think uh, there probably was not much he could have done to get in at the, at the time. And so he sort of spends the reign of Barzbe trying to figure things out in Damascus and trying to find a, find his place there. But when Barzbe dies, he is, you know, making, he's, he's, I think he probably figured it's now or never. And so he starts making a lot more trips to Cairo and trying to establish himself uh, through his texts and through his connections. How much do we know about Ibn Arab Shah's strategies during this period? As, as McChesney points out in his study of Ibn Arab Shah's life, we know almost nothing from the year 1440 until the early 1450s. That, that was pretty much until we, uh, we found this text, or, or I stumbled upon this text, the Ta'lif al-Tahir, Shia al-Malik al-Zahir, the pure composition on the characteristics of the king al-Malik al-Zahir Jekmek, which contains some biographical information and it contains his, uh, you know, a little bit more insight into his relationship with al-Bukhari, which was, you know, previously just sort of hinted at in the autobiography. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping with the research that I'm doing now on the Talif al-Tahir of Ibn Arab Shah to open up more about this mysterious period, this mysterious decade of, of the 1440s um, and what was going on right up until his death and, and how, you know, how he was using the text that he was writing um, how some of them were successes and how some of them were failures and how that and how that worked to increase his reputation and change him from uh, from a student into a scholar. Can you tell us a little bit more about this text, Atali Fatahad? It's essentially a, a two-part text. The first bit resembles an advice literature piece, which 
contains about 12 or 13 qualities of the king, such as knowledge and forbearance. And in it, the author gives a number of different kinds of anecdotes and stories and bits of poetry, all relating to a specific theme or a quality of kingship that he believes resides in the Sultan Jakmak. The second part of the text is a a more typical work of historiography, which covers about 12 months in the year uh, 841, 842, where uh, Jack Mack is coming to power and how Jack Mack consolidates his rule uh, during a period of, of 12 months in which his the, the territories of the Cairo Sultanate are beset with revolts in Syria and all kinds of uh, local disasters and calamities and how Jack Mack is able to restore order against all of this because he has these... Uh, these kingship qualities mentioned in the earlier part of the book. So the, the relationship between the two parts of the text and how they're in dialogue with each other is uh, an important part of, of my ongoing research right now. Given that the biography of Timur was all about representing Timur as the anti-ideal ruler, and this panegyric for Jakmak is about representing Jakmak as the ideal ruler, can we see it as a companion piece to the biography? In, in the first few folios of the Talif al-Tahir, he discusses that he's very recently completed his biography of Tamerlane, and you know he, he says that you know, he also wants to he wants to atone. He wants to atone for the work in the sense that he's worried that sending forth a collection of all of the bad deeds of Timur might somehow fall into the wrong hands and inspire more evil acts. And so he wants to erase the badness of that book by offering a book on the great Daula of, of the Sultan Jakmak, which um, which he, he reads as sort of the antithesis to Timur and to all of these bad things that Timur has done. And um, it's, it's sort of a companion piece. It's interesting that this text was actually not really, it wasn't finished. Uh, it only covers the first 12 months of Jack Mack's reign, and then he sort of abandons it, and it's, it's left behind. What do you think that he was trying to do with the text? Do you think it was a continuation of his quest for patronage? Essentially, yeah. I, th- I think he was trying to use it to uh, attract the attention, maybe not of Jack Mack himself, but of somebody who had access to Jack Mack. And in, in the text itself, he talks about a few of his acquaintances who knew Jack Mack or who, or who were you know, on the outskirts of his entourage. And perhaps, you know, he was hoping to, again, display his chops and get to the inside of a circle or get to the get to the court in some way. So it's self-consciously positioned as uh, an antidote to the biography of Timur, yet it is incomplete. What sort of position does it have in comparison to Ibn Arab Shah's other works? We can look at it as kind of a, a middle text. It falls in between these two much larger, more successful of his of his of texts of his. And I say that they're successful because they were there's many, many multiple manuscripts of both the Ajayb al Maktur, the Timur biography, and also his later text, um, the Fakahat al Khulafa, which was finished around 1448, about two years before he died. In the middle of these two sort of giant texts that he that are reputation builders for him follows this talif attire this pure composition which is essentially kind of a failed work it's an incomplete work and i think he he you know maybe he he lost his way halfway through or he, he was just sort of too early in jack mack's career for him to make you know big statements and um Essentially, he puts it on the shelf, and it's it's finished in the hand of a copyist. It's finished in the hand of uh, it survives in two presentation copies that were finished and and completed down to the end of Jack Mack's reign. But of course, Ibn Aramshad dies about two or three years before Jack Mack dies, and so obviously it's clear that somebody else has finished the text. But it only really covers the first year of Jack Mack's reign. 
So it seems quite clear that Ibn Arab Shah and his text raise a lot of questions, a lot of questions which you're still trying to deal with. But I have one question, one thing that we've not really touched upon, and which I think is probably quite significant. What do you know about Ibn Arab Shah's intended audience? It's not clear who the audience even was. He tells us that he's writing the Ta'lif al-Tahir, the pure composition, because he wants to write it as a as a corrective or as a as a as the as the antidote to his biography of Timur. It doesn't seem like this particular text. As I said, it was probably an abandoned text. It was something that he didn't see as is working, and then he just sort of left it. Mm-hmm. Um, but nevertheless, he wrote enough of it that we can ask about who may have read it or who engaged with it and who it was intended for. Well, I think that's a very convincing answer to a very uh, difficult question. I think at this point it is probably time to call it a day. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us, Mustafa. It was a pleasure. And to our listeners, thank you very much for joining us in this episode. And we hope you'll tune in for our next episode when we'll be looking at another historian. Until then.